Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch up my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. And then jumping to verse 14 of Exodus 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is, out, as he is going out to the water. Stand at the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And then we're jumping to Exodus chapter 10, verse 21 through 29. And then that'll be it for our reading. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go and serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock must also go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth, and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Men. One of my favorite things to watch are documentaries on food and drink. Some of you have heard me say this before, no apologies this morning. One of my favorite food and drink documentaries is the Netflix series Chef's Table, and I'm always delighted when they release new seasons and new episodes, which they recently did. And not only did they do that and what I watch, no matter uh, what chefs they highlight, in the newest season of Chef's Table on Netflix, they highlight one of my favorite chefs, Sean Brock. Sean Brock uh, is a chef that has really been famous and made his name known uh, originally in Nashville, Uh, through the Capitol Grill at the Hermitage Hotel. He really revived that restaurant and then took a job at McCready's in Charleston and really did wonders there and then launched his own series of restaurants, the most popular one being Husk. He also 
is the owner and chef of Monero, etc. Sean Brock is a fascinating character. He's fascinating for a number of different reasons, both on a human level and on the level as a chef. Sean Brock is really credited with reviving uh, historic Southern cuisine. He had a particular penchant for old seeds and grains that he himself farmed, that he inherited from people like his grandmother, where he cultivated particular uh, southern varieties that actually originated in Africa but flourished in the low country of South Carolina like rice and beans. As a quick side note that I think that you'll appreciate, or at least it'll tell you more about me, when we had to get our stuff for communion, I really wanted nice communion wear, and so we commissioned a local potter, Leanne McQueen out of Maryville, who does all the stuff for Blackberry Farm, uh, to commission our pottery, and I was commissioning a couple pieces because she doesn't normally make a carafe or a larger goblet that we would use for a common cup. And I said, by the way, we also need some small bowls that would be, for example, for our gluten-free crackers. And she said, I have the perfect thing in mind. Sean Brock just commissioned some bowls for his vegetable plates at Husk, and you could have some of those. And I said, on so many levels, yes. (laughs) And so that's one of them. Sean Brock is this great chef. Sean Brock is this interesting human being Sean Brock also, in the last year and a half of his life, had a train wreck. The train wreck was built by many different things, workaholism being one among many, but alcoholism actually being the thing that really brought the train to a screeching halt. He's, he's open and free to talk about this, not only in the Netflix documentary, Chef's Table. The New York Times released a fantastic article in July of 2017 where he's very open about this experience. And one of the things that he recounts in that article in the Times and one of the things that he recounts in Chef's Table is one day being at his house and hearing his doorbell ring thinking it was a delivery, and he opened the door. And it was the three people he loved the most in the world standing at the door. And he said, I knew right then what they were here for, and I knew it was time. And the first thing I said to him is, I'm ready. Whatever needs to happen, I'm ready. See, that's a point in his life where so many things had unfolded that they got to a point of unsustainability, and out of love, three people who loved him knocked on his door and said, enough's enough. And they had an intervention. Well, Exodus chapter 7 is God, out of love, coming to his people, saying that very same thing, enough's enough. He's going to look Pharaoh straight in the face, and he's going to say, enough oppression, enough enslavement, enough idolatry, enough arrogance, enough pride, enough smiting me, enough's enough, it's time to call you to task. And what I want us to see from the selection of Scripture that we have this morning, but keeping in mind, this is an overarching principle through this whole section of Scripture that I would encourage you to read on your own as you see these plagues unfold. The overarching thing that I want us to see is this. God is committed to justice. God is committed to deliverance. God is committed to justice, and God is committed to to deliverance. I want us to see God's commitment to justice and deliverance really in three ways. First of all, I want us to look at from this passage the absence of justice in our narrative. Secondly, I want us to look at the declaration of justice 
in our narrative. And then thirdly, I want us to look at the presence of justice in our narrative. So overarching idea, God is committed to deliverance. God is committed to justice. And by the way, justice is not always and exclusively, but justice is often synonymous with judgment. God is committed to bringing things to task. Enough is enough at this point with God because he is committed to, li- to deliverance and he is committed to justice. And we're going to see this through the absence of justice, through the declaration of justice, and through the presence of justice. First, let's look at the absence of justice, which is really focusing on the character of Pharaoh here. And once again, we've learned other things about him as we've journeyed through this series and we've enumerated specifics that the Israelites are dealing with, which I've mentioned in part here, oppression, enslavement, betrayal, all rooted in this tyrannical leader who is seeking to purport and to propagate injustice. And one of the things that we've seen in our narrative from the absence of justice here is that there is a progress. There is a progress to corruption. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. Where once sin gets going, it keeps going. There's a snowball effect to that which is wrong and broken and that which is sinful. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a helpful theological summary for us, defines sin just so we know as this. Sin is any want of, conformity unto, or transgression of the law of God. Sin is any want of, conformity unto, or transgression of the law of God. Sin, you see, is not only an action, sin is a condition. The Bible also speaks about sin as missing the mark. Well, one of the things that happens in people's lives, including our own, is we have a propensity out of birth to miss the mark, and then that propensity progresses in such a way where we know nothing except consistently missing the mark. And then our lives are tainted and marred and dominated by our depravity in which sin and brokenness unfold in a way where there is this progress of corruption. And there is this downward spiral where things get worse and worse and worse. And it seems like that's what's happening with the people of Israel. But even more specifically, that is what is happening with this particular person, Pharaoh. And with him in his own life personally, and then in his life collectively, because you know that sin is never just personal, right? Sin is personal. Our brokenness and fallenness is personal, but it always has communal implications. Always has communal implications. And so we see one person's particular sin here, his sin that is defined in things like pride, in deception, arrogance, prejudice, genuine xenophobia, insecurity, dehumanization, abusive behavior. He sees other people as less than. He sees himself as better than. He sees other people as objects for his personal disposal out of pride and insecurity and prejudice and dehumanization. And when this happens, it corrupts everyone around him. And so we see the absence of justice. Isaiah, the prophet, in chapter 5, 
verses 20 and 21 says it like this. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. This should sound familiar, by the way. Not only culturally, but personally. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those. Well, that's indicative of Pharaoh. The pathology of Pharaoh's sin is obvious on some levels, and then it's complex on others. One of my mentors in graduate school, who was British, so I listened to him even more, um, would regularly tell me when I would lament to him, he would often lament, he would often reflect back to me about the absurdity of sin. Paul in Thessalonians speaks about the mysteries of iniquity. Even if you look at Genesis 3, the fall, the historic fall of Adam and Eve, and therefore the fall of mankind, there's some complexity and there's some mystery, and ultimately there's this absurdity that surrounds sin and brokenness. And what we find in this narrative is a man who is absurd, a man who is complex. Even the text communicates the complexity and the tension If you read it or if you're familiar with it, you might be asking yourself this question. Which one is it? Did he harden his own heart or did God harden his heart? And of course, you know the answer is yes. There's this complexity and absurdity and this progress to corruption and sin. And the result of this is justice is absent. And what we must see personally are a couple things. One, we are Pharaoh. Be very easy, for example, to read Ephesians or, or to read that Isaiah 5 text and think about, okay, that which is evil is called good, and that which is good is called evil by them, the culture, the media, Hollywood. That's the problem. Hollywood looks at what is good and calls it evil and takes what is evil and calls it good. How convenient it would be if the problem in life was only them. How convenient would it be to look at Pharaoh and think, oh man, he's absurd, he's complex. The progress of corruption has unfolded to such a degree that there is an absence of justice in his life. God, get him. Wait a minute. What about your own pride? What about your own deception? What about the fact that I and we dehumanize people? It has been said if we could see into each other's hearts and minds, not one person would have more than three friends in the world. If you could see into my heart and my mind, I'm sure you would not be sitting here this morning. And so we've got to see not only the absence of justice in this narrative with Exodus and Pharaoh, though it is important for us to see that with him and to see some of the particularities of that, the progress and the complexity and the absurdity. But we must look at ourselves, right? There is a problem. I am the problem. That's a worthy application before we move on 
to this idea of God's commitment to justice being manifested in the declaration of justice, we must concede that I am Pharaoh and that God is saying enough is enough with the absence of justice because he's committed to justice and to making things right. And so not only do we see the absence of justice in this narrative, we also see the declaration of justice. And in a beautiful way, there's progress that's happening in the life of Moses. So in an ugly way, there's progress that's happening in Pharaoh, that is the progress of corruption, the progress of absurdity, the progress of complexity, the progress that Romans speaks of in chapter 1, where he says, Paul talks about God giving people over to their own sinful desires. See, God does not root those sinful desires within people, but there is a sense in mystery through human responsibility and divine sovereignty where God seemingly gives people over to the sinful desires in which they are cultivating, and that seems what to have happened with Pharaoh. But now we have Moses who is progressing in a better direction. I read about it in the Scripture intro. We see that Moses, through failing through struggling, now is growing. What we see with Moses is not the progress of corruption, but we see the progress of character. We see the progress of leadership. We see the progress of faithfulness. We see the progress of self-awareness. And as a result of this, we see him manifesting this progress of character in his own life through declaring justice. Did you catch that in the specific verses we read, which is essentially repeated throughout this handful of chapters in Exodus, Moses continues to go to Pharaoh. Just that alone, by the way, is commendable and shows a work of God's grace. As if it would be easy to stand before a tyrannical, prideful, deceited, abusive, dehumanizing leader whose progress of corruption is insidious to be able to go before him repetitively out of faithfulness to the Lord with the burden of your people on your back and to speak words of declaring justice and to have Pharaoh waffle, yes, no, yes, no, no. And then again, okay, fine. And then again, and again, and again. What we have here is Moses being an ambassador for God's commitment to justice. He's got an unflurried calm that the end of our reading this morning speaks of. He's got a confidence in God. Did you see that? Look at verse 10, 29, page 7 in your bulletin. There is this godly resolve. I mean, this, is, this, this would be, in many ways... A a typical example of what we would call a non-anxious presence. Side note, that's what we all want and we don't have it. But that's what God made us for. God made us to be present and not anxious. That sounds awesome, doesn't it? Even, Even the phrase itself is calming. But here in verse 29, you see this non-anxious presence from Moses, which shows the progress of his character development as he's declaring justice and he's entering back and forth and Pharaoh says this and then Moses just simply says, look, as you say, I will not see your face again. An unflurried calm, a quiet confidence, a strength in the Lord 
as he declares justice. Of course, there's application for us here as well. Not only in the first do we have to see the absence of justice in our own lives in the ways that that not only affects us, but affects everybody around us. We are Pharaoh, but in a positive light by God's grace, we too can be like Moses. As Moses is like God himself, as Moses is a foreshadowing of Jesus himself. You see, Moses was required. God needed Moses and his divine sovereign plan to stand for truth and to declare justice in a world that calls good evil and evil good. So the application question is probably obvious. Are you willing through the development of your character and the calmness and the confidence that happens through the work of the gospel in your life, are you willing to stand for truth? To declare justice, not only by words, but even more importantly by actions. Are we willing by the grace of God to embody Micah chapter 6 verse 8? To walk humbly, to love mercy, and to seek justice. To embody Isaiah chapter 1 who says, I'm tired of all your religious festivals. I'm tired of all the hoops that you jump through. Here's what I need you to do, Israel. Seek peace for those who are oppressed. Or James chapter 1 verse 26 and 27 defines true religion. True religion is not all these things that we think it is. In modern evangelicalism in the Western world, James says this, This is true religion. Keep yourself unstained from the world and seek justice for the orphan and the widow. These are ways to declare justice in a world that's longing for justice. And by God's grace, we see the development of Moses' character as he declares justice. So we've seen the absence of justice in this narrative. We've also seen through Pharaoh and we've seen the declaration of justice in this narrative, through Moses himself, and now it's time for us to look at the presence of justice. And the responsible party for the presence of justice in our narrative is none other than the Lord himself. At this point, through these plagues, he is saying, enough's enough. And there's some mystery to it. I mean, if the point was going to end with God issuing his own principle of death to the firstborn and God ensuing this unbelievable experience and God's Old Testament people called the Passover, which we'll look at next week. Why did he do all these other things? Like, they're just kind of weird. I don't know if you've ever seen the film. This is an obscure film from 2000 by a really classic postmodern filmmaker, P.T. Anderson, called Magnolia. And in Magnolia, there are all these references to Exodus chapter 8, verse 2. He's not a Christian, by the way, and there's this classic scene in Magnolia that's super weird where frogs are raining down upon the people like on earth. Well, things like that happened. Supernaturally, we would add. As we see all these plagues unfold here, as we see God starting to make justice present, and He's doing this because what He's saying is enough is enough These are my people. In a humorous way, I've got a friend back from Memphis um, who told me a story, and he's older than I am. When his son was middle school age, 
he one day took his son and some of his friends to a movie theater. And of course, like any good, astute middle school parent, he was going to take them. He was going to go into the theater, but not sit anywhere near them, right? Like dad's not here. And so the middle school boys, including his son, sat towards the front row. And my friend Russ sat at the very back row. And as they were watching the film, he couldn't help but to notice there were a group of high school boys that he did not know sitting behind his middle school boys And he watched them just kind of continually mess with them and do things like perpetually kick their seats during the movie. And as he sat back there, and you can imagine what, I don't know, this would feel like, right? Just watch in person live your son get bullied. Russ decided enough's enough. And he walked down while the movie's going in the dark, and moved into the row, you know how tight movie theater rows are, and came in and sat on one of the high school kids' laps. (laughs) And he said, if you kick that chair again, I'm going to kick your, what I can't say in a sermon. And then he moved out of the row, walked to the back, and the boys left. Enough was enough. Well, in many ways, we find God much more redemptively and significantly in this same place. What he's saying is, I'm tired of you kicking my people. It's time for me to kick back. I'm going to start by turning the river in which you worship, in which your life revolves around, into blood. And then I'm going to send frogs, and then I'm going to send lice, and then I'm going to send flies, and then your animals are going to die of insidious disease, and then I'm going to send boils. How do you like that? And then hail, and then locust, and then last but not least, darkness. Enough is enough. What do the plagues reveal about God? Number one, they reveal that he's real. I don't know if you remember Pharaoh at different times, somewhat mockingly and even sarcastically says, the Lord never heard of him. I think he's heard of him at this point. Another thing that these plagues reveal about God is that he is distinctive. Chapter 8, verse 10 says simply, there is no one like the Lord. Another thing that the plagues reveal about God is that he's all-powerful. Chapter 9, verse 16 says, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I may show you my power, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And his power is manifest in these explicitly real but supernatural events that are actual miracles of the bad kind. And then another thing that the plagues reveal about God is his love for obedience and his abhorrence for disobedience. I know this is not particularly popular to talk about, It's not my choice. This is what the scriptures say. God loves obedience and God abhors disobedience. Why? Tim Keller says it like this. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but it is his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race. He loves with his whole being. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but it is his settled opposition to the cancer 
which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. We might prefer, in theory, a blissful kingdom. We might prefer, in theory, our perception of an all-loving God with, by the way, a very narrow definition of what love is. Nothing to do with hardness or boldness or justice, which is not love. We might prefer that in theory, but we don't really want that. As much as what grappling with the judgment and the justice of God, as uncomfortable as that makes us, what's the alternative? Where is their justice for the Jews in the middle of the 20th century if God is not committed to making things right? Where is their justice to teenage girls even this day who are trafficked as property throughout our world if God does not say enough is enough? I get that judgment is scary. I get that it is tenuous. I get, trust me, as the one who's speaking about it, that it's unpopular. But what if God doesn't judge? What if there is no justice? Does that feel better? Does that help you sleep at night? You see, the issue is we all want justice And in fact, so often the problem with justice is we seek to take it in our own hands, like the John Grisham novel, A Time to Kill. If you've read that, who's not sympathetic to prejudice and racist Mississippi, to harm done to an African-American girl, knowing in the white court system she's not going to get justice? What dad does not want to take the gun into his own hand and kill her abuser? Yet God does not promote violence in that sort of way. So what would stop a person, a human being, from not seeking judgment and justice through our own personal violence? I'll tell you what it is. The promise and the hope in a God who will do it himself and will do it in a way that's much more effective and actually, as strange as this might sound, much worse than your own attempt at justice and judgment. Keller goes on to say, if I don't believe that there is a God who will eventually put all things right, I will take up the sword and will be sucked into the endless vortex of retaliation. Only if I am sure that there's a God who will right all wrongs and settle all accounts perfectly, do I have the power to refrain from justice, judgment, and violence myself. And by the way, judgment and justice and violence doesn't always come through a weapon. It oftentimes comes through our tongue and our mind. The thoughts we think. I want to begin to land this plane but explore this a little bit more. And I want us to reflect upon this idea of God's judgment and justice. Keeping in mind, just for review, God's committed to justice. And the reason he's committed to justice is there's an absence of justice in this narrative and there's an absence of justice in our world. God's also committed to declaring justice and we see Moses declaring this justice. And so because of the absence of justice and because of the declaration of justice, God has promised to bring justice present 
yet this makes us uncomfortable, and that's understandable. Keller deals with this extremely well just in general and more specifically in his book called The Reason for God. And one of the people that Keller relies upon heavily in The Reason for God is a Croatian theologian who's Protestant, Reformed, and he's a professor at Yale, and his name is Miroslav Volf. And he talks about this better than anyone I've ever heard or read, and I want to see if you can follow with me for the next few minutes as we consider what Wolf has to say about God's judgment and justice. One could object that it is not worthy of God to wield a sword. Is God not love, long-suffering, and all-powerful love? One could further argue that in a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. Most people who insist on God's nonviolence, not judgment, not bringing justice, God needs to be nonviolent. He says, most people who insist on God's nonviolence cannot resist using violence themselves or tactically sanctioning it by the use of others. They deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands. Persuaded, presumably, that it is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. That we should, quote, bring down the powerful from their thrones seems reasonable. That God should do the same as the song of a revolutionary virgin explicitly states seems crude. And so violence thrives, secretly nourished by the belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. Violence thrives, secretly harbored in the belief of human beings in a God who is nonviolent, is what he's saying. I'll close at least my section on what Wolf says with this, and I think you'll be able to Follow along with me in this. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief, ultimately, in divine vengeance. It will be unpopular with many Christians, especially in the West. See, there's cultural things that we bring to the table with this. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone which is what he's doing, by the way. Which is where this paper was written, he says. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. This is his world in the Balkans. He's talking about God's justice to people who have experienced this And he's speaking to us in the West who think God is mean. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect in non-coercive love. Soon you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked by the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. As one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities 
of the liberal mind. Point being, it's easy for us to be uncomfortable with God's judgment and justice because most of us have lived in the West in relative ease with no violence whatsoever. But that's not the world that Israel was living in. They were living in a world of enslavement and oppression and abuse and dehumanization. And it was time for God to say enough's enough. On one hand, that should bring us great comfort. On another hand, if we believe what we said at first, that we are Pharaoh, that should also cause us to question, wait a minute. I am broken. I am sinful. I do deserve judgment and justice. Is God going to simply dismiss it? You know what the answer is? No way. Then what's the rub? If God's committed to justice and we proliferate injustice, I'll tell you the rub. His name's Jesus. Because you see, God is so committed to justice and judgment and righteousness that he poured forth his full wrath on injustice in the person of Christ on the cross. And so he's fully just, yet he's deeply loving. And that's the good news of the gospel for us who are sinners. Let me, play, let me close in prayer.